The following message comes to you from the pulpit of Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church in Ackerman, Mississippi. We invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For more information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org. This morning I'd like to turn to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. During our visit in Tyler last week, we had a conversation after lunch. had really good fellowship and good discussions. and uh, We're having a conversation with a brother about suffering. And uh, in the midst of that conversation, this verse that we discussed, Hebrews chapter 5 and in verse 8, I've read it before, thought about it before, but uh, it added a lot more context and a lot more color to this this passage, and uh, hopefully the Lord will bless us in considering that this morning, considering the topic of learning obedience through suffering, learning obedience through suffering, and I know today's Christmas Eve, uh, and we are happy and joyful for the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he came into this world to save us from our sins. But it's interesting that in the scriptures, it says that the day of one's death is actually better than the day of one's birth. And the excitement of a birth is is a happy and a joyful time. But actually, if you think about the time of Jesus's life after that birth, Jesus's life here on earth, was primarily characterized by suffering. And that's a sobering point to really think about, isn't it? That we are disciples of Jesus Christ. That means we're followers of the Lord. And if we're going to be followers of him, we want to pattern ourselves after his life. And his life was primarily a life of suffering with the culmination of why he even came into this world, the culmination of that suffering was him suffering on the cross to save his people from their sins, right? Here in Hebrews chapter 5, we'll start reading in verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Now, there are certainly probably other times that this was expressed during the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ, but I believe we could certainly say that this was true um, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? As he was so overwhelmed with the the weight of the suffering that was uh, upcoming on the, uh, the tree of the cross on the next day, that he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood, as it were, great drops of blood. And he offered prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. Though he were a son, verse 8, though he were a son, though Jesus Christ was the Son of God, yet he learned, or yet learned he, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, that's very interesting language, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It should be interesting for you because, number one, God never learned anything, and Jesus is always perfectly obedient, right? So as the Son of God, <clears throat> Jesus Christ knows everything. He's perfectly omniscient. He knows the end from the beginning, and he knows every possible outcome, and, and he has perfect omniscience, perfect knowledge. And... Jesus Christ said in his ministry, my will is, or my meat, my, my meat, my substance, my, uh, the thing that sustains me on a day in, day out basis, the way that food and meat sustains us. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me. And obviously Jesus Christ perfectly executed the will of the father, right? So he never learned anything and he was always obedient, (laughs) But it says here that though he were a son, he learned obedience 
by the things which he suffered. Now, this is certainly not talking about his capacity as the Son of God in perfect omniscience and perfect obedience. He is setting a pattern and an example for us to follow in his submission to the will of God through suffering as the Son of Man, right? Not as the Son of God, because the Son of God, he knows everything, he's perfectly obedient, and obviously he was perfectly obedient as the Son of Man as well. But it says here of Jesus Christ that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And he went through that pathway. He went through that journey for the purpose of giving us a pattern to follow. Okay? And I hope that we can have some degree of understanding that there is tremendous value there is tremendous growth in suffering and one of those things one of those things that there is tremendous growth in suffering suffering is that it helps us learn obedience it helps us learn obedience to the commandments of God and to the will of God <clears throat> now if um if suffering helps us learn obedience, then that's something that it's natural that we have to learn it, right? Uh, that, that sounds a little bit obvious, but um, obedience is not something in our nature that really just comes naturally. Uh, we're told in Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul is saying that he learned, he has learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content contentment is a learned trait because naturally we want to be discontent. We think that we deserve more and the world, whole world's against me and nobody knows the sorrows that I've, that I've seen and I deserve way more than I have. Discontentment is natural. But I have to learn in my disposition that naturally leans toward discontentment. I have to learn to be content in a state that may not even be that comfortable. And we have a disposition toward disobedience. So therefore, how do we learn obedience? One of the ways that the Lord allows us to learn obedience is through suffering. In uh, Ephesians chapter 2, he's describing the state of man before the new birth. You have the quickened who are dead in trespasses and in sin. And one of the descriptions of the natural man before the new birth, before God changes his nature, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, you have the quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sin, <clears throat> where in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. So we have something inside of us that naturally we are disobedient. Apart from the quickening spirit of God, when we're dead in trespasses and in sin, we are characterized as being the children of disobedience. Well, how do we learn to be obedient? One of the main ways is by the movement of the Holy Spirit in our life, right? The way we even have the capacity to be obedient is because God quickens our nature, quickens our soul, and gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit that now, those things that when we were living in disobedience to God's law that we felt no conviction, we were happy engaging in all of the sins of the flesh, now all of a sudden we have a spirit inside of us that teaches us to live soberly, righteously, and godly, Titus chapter 2, and also teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. So that disobedience that I used to be engaged in, the Spirit of God teaches me to not do that. But not only does it <clears throat> teach in the negative, in the sense to not do that, but the Spirit teaches in the positive. It tells you how to live. The Spirit convicts you to guide you how to live, to live soberly, righteously, and godly, here in this present world. <clears throat> in the book of the Proverbs, it talks about um, children. And obviously, we're the children of God. It describes us there 
in Ephesians chapter 2 as being the children of disobedience. Well, in the book of Proverbs, what does it say that's bound in the heart of the child? Is, is obedience naturally found in the heart of the child? What does Proverbs say? Foolishness <laughs> is bound in the heart of the child, right? Foolishness is bound in the heart of the child. But there is a rod of correction that will drive that foolishness far from them. So, uh, in a parental sense, and if we haven't experienced it in a parental sense yet, we've certainly experienced it as a child. The reason why discipline matters, the reason why biblical loving chastisement, not abuse, but loving chastisement, the reason why that is necessary is because we have a nature inside of us that doesn't lend toward obedience. We have a nature inside of us that lends toward disobedience. <clears throat> you know, if you tell a kid, if you tell a child, and, and I say a child, we, <laughs> we kind of uh, present this as a child, but really uh, our, our adult minds think the same way. If you tell them, especially this time of year when maybe kids are looking for presents or something, do not look in that closet, you know? Well, you know what? They've probably walked by that closet every day. They didn't think a single thing about that closet. They had no desire to go in that closet because best they know, there's probably cleaning supplies in that closet. You know, I have, I'm not interested in that closet at all. But now all of a sudden, when a, when a authority figure, when a parent says, do not go in that closet, now all of a sudden there's only one place they want to be, right? <laughs> Why? Why? Because in our nature, we are the children of disobedience. Now, what happens when that child then says, man, there must be something really, really exciting in that closet. Well, they open that closet. There needs to be appropriate discipline uh, for opening a door. You know, you as the parent decide what that appropriate discipline is. Don't, don't, don't discipline them too hard for opening a door, right? But set appropriate parameters and make sure you're consistent. Make sure if you say something, you follow through with it, okay? But the point is, how does the child then, when they, have, they are interested in something that they're told not to do, they um, choose to disobey, how do they learn the lesson to, to obey the next time they're given a command to not do something. Well, there has to be a little bit of suffering. <laughs> That's what chastisement is. There has to be a little bit of suffering. Um, I doubt my little uh, eight-year-old nephew will listen to this message. His parents might. Uh, but he was told to not do something. He was, he was told to uh, not get on uh, a particular video game. And guess what? He did what he was not supposed to do. And he had to go three days without having to play that video game. And you know what? I, I was talking to uh, various people about that when we were visiting this weekend. And I said, you know, chastisement needs to hurt. And you know what? It doesn't always hurt by a little pat on the, uh, on the leg. Sometimes it's hurt. This is the greatest suffering <laughs> that a little eight-year-old boy can have. And uh, I'd, I'd say bless his heart, but not bless his heart. It, it was very ironic and somewhat satisfying to me that then he gets, on, on the day that is the last day of his three days of punishment, he gets Madden 24 that he was so excited to play that he wasn't allowed to play. Why? Because he was disobedient three days before, which I think is a very good lesson that he needed to learn. The point is, the point is, chastisement needs to have some degree of suffering to where they don't really want to go through that again, right? That's when we are disobedient. But, you know, not every suffering that we encounter in our life is because of our disobedience in the sense of disobedience to God's law. Sometimes the Lord suffers challenging circumstances to come in our life to allow us to learn obedience. You know, um, look at all the suffering that Jesus Christ engaged in in this world. And he was perfectly, 
obedient to the will of the Father. But notice his submissiveness setting the example for us. His submissiveness to the will of the Father in the Garden of Eden. While at the same time, his will and the Father's will were one. Right? You know, when he's praying that prayer, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, Jesus is not saying, it's, if, it were, if, if it was up to me, my will is to not die on the cross. But Lord, if you really say so, I'll go ahead and do it, which shows a disunity in the will of the Son and the will of the Father. No, it was his will the whole time, right? But he is showing submission and obedience to the will of the Father as the Son of Man so that we can learn that lesson in submission to the will of God. And what, how do we primarily learn submission and obedience to the will of God? It's usually by having some crossroads where I realize that my preference and my comfort and my desire is different than God's will. And at that point, do I rebel against God's will? Or do I submit to God's will? <clears throat> We've been going through the will of God on the radio. And um, I told somebody recently, it feels like that almost the testimony of my life, the verse, there's a lot of them really, but one of them that seems to come to my mind uh, a lot in Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 9, it says, A man's heart devises his way but the Lord directs his steps. In other words, I have an idea of what's best for me. I have an idea of the right pathway. But you know what? I have learned, not through comfortable circumstances, I have learned that, you know what? I might devise my own way, but the Lord directing my steps according to his will is much better than what I might have perceived was best for me on the front end. I devise my own way, but the Lord directs our steps. Now, when he's directing your steps, do you rebel against that? Or do you submit to it? Well, one of the benefits of going through those challenging circumstances that might even include suffering is now seeing the will of God and seeing it displayed in action and seeing that God's way is so much better than my way and his will is good, acceptable, and perfect will is so much better than what I thought and perceived was better. And then when I learned that lesson, now all of a sudden I have, at least in this instance, I've learned obedience through some of the things that I've been called to suffer. Okay. Okay. Um, Let's back up a little bit here in the book of Hebrews. I want to hit a few things um, before we make our way to some other verses. One, one of the main themes, <clears throat> one of the main themes here in the book of Hebrews um, is the uh, position of Jesus Christ as our high priest. And it spends a lot of time describing him and uh, describing his authority as not a priest after the Levitical priesthood, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek. It spends a lot of time in Hebrews discussing that. But it describes his authority, his, uh, his not just sympathy, which is feeling sorry for someone, but empathy that's saying, I've been there before, and I know what you're going through, that I can put myself in your shoes. The reason that he can display empathy to God's people is because his life was characterized by suffering. Okay, let's look at this. Hebrews chapter 2, we'll start reading here in verse 9. But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. You know, today's Christmas Eve. We're thinking about the birth of Jesus Christ, right? Why was he made a little lower than the angels? Why? Now, when he showed up, it was, it was uh, peace on earth, joy, singing in angels. But why did he show up? Why? For the suffering of death. Jesus Christ was born to suffer and die, right? He wasn't born just to be born. He wasn't born just to live a normal life. Jesus Christ was born 
to suffer and die. He was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, and because of that, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man, all of the elect. For it became him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in making many sons unto glory, bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, he's already perfect, right? Just like how he already has all knowledge. He already has, he's perfectly obedient, and he's already perfect. But as the son of man, the captain of our salvation was reached his final destination of completeness and perfection of saving his people from their sins. What was the mechanism through which he arrived at the completion of his intended purpose for coming into this world? How, did, how was that accomplished? In that sense, how was he made perfect? In the sense of completing the task that he showed up on this world to do, which is save his people from their sins. How did he accomplish that? Through what? Through suffering. Make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, because of that, I'll skip to verse 18, still in Hebrews chapter 2. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, now he is able to succor them that are tempted, right? He, he knows what real suffering's about. He knows what pouring out his heart uh, to prayer and prayer to God is with strong crying and tears as the son of man. And because of that, he doesn't just have empathy and feel sorry, or sympathy and feel sorry for you. He has empathy to succor those. And notice the connection here between suffering and temptation. For in that, he himself being suffered, being tempted. And boy, temptation is a great suffering many times, isn't it? Notice the connection there between suffering and temptation. Now let's skip to chapter 4. <laughs> Verse 14, seeing then we have a great high priest, which is passing into the heavens, Jesus Christ, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. So we do have a high priest that can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. Because of that, let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Now, here it says he was tempted in all points as we are. But I think we could just as easily say that he suffered. See the connection earlier between temptation and suffering? He suffered in all points as we suffer here in this world. Okay? Now, what was the end result of his suffering? It was glory and honor, isn't it? And that's the end result of our suffering as well. No doubt we will be joint heirs with Jesus Christ, the end result of any suffering that we were encounter here in this world is hopefully we'll stay on track and end up there in Romans chapter 8. The sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, right? But there are lessons that we need to learn. And you know what? One of the main ways that God knows I think that we can understand this from a parental sense. One of the main mechanisms to allow us to learn obedience is through what? Through some degree of suffering, right? Through some degree of going through something that humbles yourself to know that I, I can't do this by myself. I have no capacity to, to bear the burden of this trial in and of myself, and that allows me to be submissive to the will of God and God's ultimate goal. Let's keep this in mind. So many things that we consider, so many aspects in our life, always, always, always keep this in mind. God's intention before the foundation of the world has always been for you to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8. He chose us in Christ. He foreknew us. He predestinated us. For what purpose? That we would be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, we are going to be perfectly 
conform to the image of Jesus Christ at his uh, second coming at the resurrection and our souls are already perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in regeneration and at the last day our bodies are going to be perfectly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ but God's intention for you being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ is not for you to just wait until the second coming on a daily basis the Lord as a good father is guiding his children with his perfect wisdom for what is necessary and beneficial for them at this season of life, at this time of life, in this particular circumstance that they're in right now, my goal, the Lord's goal, is always that you would be more and more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ in discipleship, right? That's always the goal. The goal is always for you to be a more perfect, closer model of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not going to happen perfectly this side of heaven, right? It's not going to happen perfectly for anybody, and even for those that live faithfully, some people make total shipwreck, and they don't in any way resemble the image of Jesus Christ in their discipleship. But God's goal, God's intention for every one of his children is for them on a daily basis in the way that we serve the Lord on a daily basis is for us to be more and more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, if we're more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, what was the image of Jesus Christ in his life here on earth? It wasn't an image of a mighty king coming in on a white horse and praise from everyone and great accolades and success. You know, Jesus Christ was homeless. Do we understand that? He said, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests. Son of man, he doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. The last week of his life in Jerusalem... He didn't stay, he didn't even stay with uh, friends and family that he had. You want to know where Jesus slept the last week of his life? Every night he went out to the Mount of Olives and slept on the Mount of Olives as he spent most of the night there in prayer with the Lord. Jesus Christ was homeless. To pay his taxes, he had somebody say, go out there and catch a fish uh, and there's going to be a coin in the mouth of the fish and you give that to them to pay my taxes you know he, di he didn't have uh, enough money to pay the basic taxes that that uh he was obligated to pay uh as a citizen in that time and then if we think that our life is going to be characterized by everyone loving us and everyone being our biggest fan if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, there's a good chance we might follow the pattern of Jesus Christ, that there's some people that, that the fiber of their being is totally consumed with hatred toward Jesus Christ, right? Now, that's the image of Jesus Christ that the Lord desires for us to be conformed to. <laughs> you see that? What is that image of Jesus Christ characterized by? It's not by comfort and ease and everything going your way. The image of Jesus Christ in his life of discipleship, in his life of serving the Lord in his public ministry, was primarily characterized, the image was identified by suffering. Okay? It's identified by suffering. So the more we're conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, the more, in many ways, we will have to learn obedience through suffering. And that suffering takes a lot of different forms, you know. It may not be um, a physical illness that my back hurts or I have some terminal diagnosis. Um, it may not be problems on the job. 
problems in school. That suffering takes a lot of different forms at different points in our life, okay? But there is always a lesson to be learned in the midst of suffering. There's always a lesson to be learned. And what we don't want to do is squander that lesson, squander that class, if you'll let me use that language, just because I stomp my foot and say, I don't want to be in this class. <laughs> I hope that we can understand the value of learning obedience through suffering. Okay, I want to highlight a few things. Let's go to, <clears throat> excuse me, let's go to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Let's hit verse 29 right here. Now notice this language. This is very interesting, isn't it? For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, aren't we thankful for the gift that God has given us to understand and believe the gospel and the word of God, right? How do we have the capacity to believe? Because God has given us the free gift of faith. He's born us again. And in the new birth, he gives us that gift of faith that now we have the ability to actively exercise that we actively exercise through belief. So, if I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, I didn't just decide to believe on him. That is a gift from God. Now, as with any gift, you can squander it, right? We don't always believe in the manner that we ought to. Lord, I believe, but help thou my unbelief. As with any gift, you can squander it. But if you exercise that gift, that gift did not, that, that belief didn't come from you. Where'd it come from? It's a gift from God. Aren't we glad for the gift of God that he granted us in belief? But notice the other thing <laughs> in the rest of the sentence. Praise God for the gift of belief, right? Mm -hmm. Praise God for the gift of faith where we can feel the power of the saving influence of the gospel in our life when we walk in belief in Jesus Christ. But God has also given you, just as he gave you the gift of belief, God has also given you the gift of suffering. There's the language. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer. Now notice this, for his sake, right? There's a lot of suffering that we may encounter that's maybe not for his sake. But suffering is just as much a gift from God as belief is, because it allows us to be more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, but Lord willing, we're going to make our way to Philippians chapter 3. In the midst of suffering, we have a fellowship with Jesus Christ that we just don't have when we are receiving the blessing of nothing but prosperity, right? Because that's not the image of Jesus Christ. The image of Jesus Christ as the Son of Man is not characterized by prosperity and power and fame and all men speaking well of you. If they do speak well of you, Jesus says, woe unto you, be careful if all men speak well of you. But our eternal fellowship with Jesus Christ, that's nothing but glory. But here on earth, boy, this world is not our home. This world is no friend to grace. We are, we are surrounded by children of disobedience. And guess what? Those children of disobedience are going to tempt you to be disobedient, even as a, children of, as a child of God. So, it is given to you to suffer for his sake. Now, let's go to, uh, let's go to 1 Peter. I want to highlight quite a few verses here in 1 Peter. And um, one of the main themes of this entire epistle here in 1 Peter is, uh, is persecution and suffering for the cause of Christ and also specifically suffering according to the will of God. 
First Peter chapter two, verse eighteen. So, uh, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Now, uh, I try to put myself in the shoes of a servant. Uh, it's hard for us to do that as as a liberty, freedom loving Americans. But yes, I want to be obedient to the person who I'm serving, paying off a debt possibly that, uh, you know, had a mortgage down at the bank. And that day, if I can't pay my mortgage at the bank, you didn't have the privilege of bankruptcy. You went and you worked for the banker. And you know what? That banker may be a bad guy. He may be a jerk. He may be very cruel. But at the end of the day, the New Testament says, you're not serving that cruel master. You're serving Jesus Christ. So therefore, you be obedient to them whether they're nice to you, whether they're rude to you. You're obedient to them because by being obedient to them, you're obedient to Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, you're not serving that master. You're serving your great master, Jesus Christ, right? For it is thankworthy, verse 19, if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. You know what? That you maybe you did exactly what that very grievous master told you to do. And maybe he's chastising you or punishing you when you did not deserve it. You know what? That that's wrong for that to happen. But you know what? If you if you handle that in the right way then that's a tremendous witness that is a glory to God that in time, who knows? You know, maybe your master is not at that stage in his spiritual walk. Maybe he's not born again at that time. But the way that you respond to where in time, in future times, maybe he's born again. Maybe he's convicted to see the error of his ways. And he looks back and says, you know what? I was 100% in the wrong when I did this to so-and-so. But he... (laughs) started quoting this verse from the Bible about loving your enemies, and he told me he was praying for me. And that didn't make a lick of sense to me at the time. Actually, it made me a little bit madder. But now that I feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, man, I need to go find out what's different about the joy of this servant when I know I treated him horribly, but look at the way he treated me. So what he's saying here is that if somebody treats you horribly, If you suffer that in the right way, even if that hypothetical future convert that we were just discussing right there, even if that never happens, you want to know who's honored by that? Jesus Christ is honored by that. If you suffer for righteousness sake. Now he continues on here. Uh, Well, that's in the next chapter. Uh, Let's just continue on here. Verse 20. For what glory is it if you be buffeted for your faults that you take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. <laughs> In other words, uh, you don't have the right to say, oh, I'm suffering for Christ's sake. If cause somebody, uh, if your, your parents told you to not go in that closet, I disobeyed them, and I'm receiving the chastisement for my disobedience, you don't have the right to say, oh, I'm suffering for the cause of Christ. No, that's called sowing and reaping. That's called consequences, okay? But if you, if, you do, if you do the right thing with the right attitudes and wicked people, sinful people persecute you for that, then that is honorable to the Lord. Now, Jesus set the example for this. <clears throat> that is acceptable with God. Verse 21, for even hereunto were ye called, you are called, to suffer according to the will of God in a way that is representative of the person that we are trying to model and disciple ourselves after. Now, how did Jesus respond to suffering? Who did no sin, neither was any guile found. Just about any accusation you can make against me, if you look close enough, it'll probably be right. But with him, there was no accusation that could ever be right. Well, how was his response to that? When he was reviled, he reviled not again. Boy, it's hard to hold your tongue, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Now, there's a place for standing up for yourself, right? There's a place for 
go into human resources, there's a place for filing lawsuits, right? There, there's, there's avenues. There's avenues. Even the, the Apostle Paul, uh, you know, he had legal rights and he appealed unto Caesar. You know, he had the right to do that. And he, he exercised the fullness of his legal rights. But, boy, it's hard when somebody reviles to hold your tongue. And, and you know what? Maybe in that setting, that's why God has to give us wisdom. Maybe in that, te- in that setting, maybe you don't need to hold your tongue. You know? It says in Proverbs, answer a fool according to his folly. I always get them reversed. Um, I can't remember if answer or not answer first. But right after that, it says, answer not a fool according to his Which one is it? Well, both. Depending on the circumstance. Sometimes they need to receive a public rebuke that other people need to hear. But it's not about me trying to make my own ego feel better by reviling them. It's about having a public witness for the truth and for Jesus Christ, if I do that. It's not about me trying to make myself feel better. But if you're reviled, I don't think even any of us just naturally gravitate toward me sitting on my hands and not defending myself, especially if something has been said about me that's untrue. Well, all they did was slander Jesus Christ, right? All they did. He was reviled. He didn't revile again. He suffered, and he threatened not. Boy, I tell you, if I was the son of God and they were beating me with a cat of nine tails, let me tell you, those 12,000, those 12 legions of angels that were waiting to come, I would have called them down. I would have called them down. But when he suffered... He took it quietly. He didn't threaten those people that were doing it. He was the son of God, the king of kings and the lord of lords and the sovereign of this universe. But when he suffered, he didn't threaten those Roman soldiers. There was going to come a time for judgment. There was going to come a time for judgment. Even if it wasn't until his second coming, there was going to come a time for judgment. When he suffered, he didn't threaten them. He took it patiently, submitting Where's the language I want? He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You want to know why he didn't feel the need when he was reviled to revile back? Is because he knew there in that instance, Jesus, God the Father, was testifying of his innocency. He didn't, he didn't have to verbally say that. Even God, you know, God spoke through a donkey in times past. He spoke through Pilate to say, I find no fault in the man. He spoke through Pilate, who most likely was this wicked reprobate. He spoke through the mouth of that donkey Pilate to declare there is no fault in him. So he didn't have to defend himself and say, this is unfair. This is all false slander. God spoke for him. God the Father defended him. He committed himself to him that judges righteously. Okay, I want to hit a few more verses in the, the next chapters. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Happy are ye. That means blessed. You know, those beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are... Those are all, in many ways, negative circumstances. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Then you get to the end of it. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. They're in a blessed and a happy condition. Blessed are you. Be not afraid of their terror. Uh, Neither be troubled. Let's try to skip some of this for time's sake. Having a, verse 16, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation of Jesus Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evildoing. It would never be according to the will of God for me to suffer, right? And then what Christianity says today? If you're really living right, then you're not going to suffer. You're going to have prosperity. You're going to have all these material blessings. Well, show me where Jesus Christ had all these material blessings if I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ, right? 
How was his life characterized by? Suffering. Suffering. But notice, anyone, <laughs> this was the case with the, uh, the trials of Jesus Christ. This was the case with the false accusations in the trials of, of Paul. It was just wicked men trying to come up with these fabrications that they had done something wrong. And any neutral bystander could look back and say, this is just total nonsense because one person is saying the exact opposite of another person and even the same person is contradicting themselves. So you have all of these false accusations just all imploding. Why? One of the reasons why is it doesn't make any sense and it's going to implode because of the inconsistencies because, you know, you tell one lie, you got to keep up with all these other lies to keep up with that lie. But you want to know the real reason why all that imploded? Is because Jesus committed himself to the one that judged righteously and Jesus and God the Father was testifying that he's innocent, right? That's why it imploded. Is because God was defending him. God the Father was defending him. It is better, if the will of God be so, that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Verse 18. <clears throat> for Christ also hath once suffered for sin, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, and being quickened by the Spirit. The whole reason that we have the hope of eternal life is because of suffering, because of Christ's suffering. Okay, 1 Peter chapter 4, chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. This is not new. Suffering is not new. Trial is not new. Jesus Christ said before he went uh, to the cross the night of his arrest, told the disciples, in this world ye shall have tribulation. It's guaranteed. That shall just as strong as he shall save his people from their sins. You're going to have problems. You're going to have suffering. We just need to learn obedience through that suffering, not just whine and mully grub about, oh, things are so bad. We need to learn the lessons that God the Father is teaching us in the midst of suffering, okay? So don't think it's strange. You're not unique. You are unique to the Lord, but you're not unique in suffering. We all have to endure suffering, and that suffering takes a lot of different forms depending on our individual life. But rejoice, verse 13, but rejoice. This is where the perspective changes. Rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings. That when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. If any of you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. <laughs> you know, that's one of those disciples in Acts chapter 5. They left rejoicing that they were counted worthy. You see that language? What a blessing that we are being faithful enough to Jesus Christ that they're willing to imprison us for Jesus Christ. We are counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of Christ resteth upon thee. That's a good place to be, isn't it? You know, think about, think about the Apostle Paul when he was there in that prison in Philippi, and him and Silas were singing praises to God at midnight. He was living this out, wouldn't he? You want to know why? Because, yes, his back hurt because he'd just been whipped. Yes, no doubt he was tired and hungry and he was in prison at midnight. But you want to know, at a minimum, there were two people singing. And you want to know who was singing with them there. You know, they were not in public worship on the Lord's Day at 1030 a.m., so to say. But they were having worship. And you want to know who was singing right there along with them in that Philippian jail? Jesus Christ. And boy, I think, I think he was singing put this in the in the correct reverential way i think he was singing more with more gusto with them because of what they had suffered 
then when we come in on Sunday and our hearts are not right and we are going through the motions, let me tell you, they were experiencing one of the best song services that they had ever had. You want to know why? Because I think Jesus Christ showed up more powerfully in that song service than he did in just a regular Sunday morning. Why? Because they were suffering for his name. So think about Stephen, right? Think about Stephen and how in that moment, right before the Lord took him to glory, there was a a power of fellowship with Jesus Christ in the midst of that suffering that was no doubt better than any worship service than Stephen had ever had in his entire life. You want to know why the Lord showed up, why he stood up to welcome Stephen into heaven? You want to know why? It wasn't because he had received some material blessing. It's because he was suffering for the name of Christ. And there was a glory and a power and an honor in that, that Jesus Christ said, I'm going to come down and I'm going to show you my glory. I'm going to show you my power. Why? Because you're not just suffering in general. You're suffering for my namesake. Verse 15. Now let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a busybody doesn't mean it matters. You know, uh, if someone commits DUI and they go to jail because they committed DUI, you're not, you're not suffering according to the glory of Christ, that's called consequences. That's called law and order, <laughs> right? Now, you can learn a lot from it. Ain't no doubt about that, right? You can learn a lot from that. But let me tell you, that's not the kind of suffering that we're talking about. Not because I made a dumb mistake and I got to pay the consequences for this dumb mistake. But if any of you suffer as a Christian, if any of you suffer according to the will of God, let him glorify God on this behalf. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for allowing me the privilege of suffering for your name's sake. Let's try to hit Philippians chapter 3 really quickly. Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> yeah, doubtless I count all these things, all this, all this material prominence, this political power I used to have, those are... Nothing but loss for what? What was he willing to give all that up for? For the excellency of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I just want to know Christ better. I want to fellowship with him more intimately, more closely. You want to know how you fellowship with him the most closely? Through suffering. That's how you suffer. That's how you, you fellowship the most closely with Jesus Christ. And it continues on here in verse 10. That I may know him. That's, our, that's life eternal. That's life eternal is knowing God, knowing Jesus Christ. I want to know him and I want to know the power of his resurrection, right? Everything that we believe is centered on the resurrection and there's, there's power in that resurrection. And I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. But you want to know the third thing there in the midst of this series that's just as powerful as the first two. Now, it's not, it's not always as pleasant as the first two, Right? I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And Paul says, I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to feel that. I want to feel that power. Uh, we're not going to take time to go to Hebrews chapter 11. But when it's talking about Moses, Moses forsook Egypt. He forsook all of the, the material prosperity of being the prince of Egypt. And it says that he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God, but it uses language there. Remember, Moses never knew the name of Jesus Christ. Now, he knew the Son of God. He knew the Son of God because God revealed himself to him through faith in his heart and the new birth. But in his head, he never knew Jesus of Nazareth, Right? No Old Testament saint did. But when he chose to give up all of the trappings of material wealth and prosperity, and he says, I'm going to go down and I'm going to have taskmasters whip my back for making bricks down in Goshen. It says that he, he esteemed in his own mind, he made a decision 
that the reproaches of Christ, the reproach of Christ was of greater value than any blessing, material blessing that he could receive down in Egypt. Jesus Christ had not even been born of a virgin yet. But it says that Moses fellowshiped with Jesus Christ in the midst of his sufferings. Do you see that? Jesus Christ came down and fellowshiped with Moses. I don't know if the Ten Commandments got it just right, uh, but it definitely gives a picture of him going down and him, him with his feet uh, making those bricks down in the, in the pits and being whipped by the taskmaster. You want to know who's down there in those pits with him? It says Jesus Christ was down there with him. <laughs> and that was long before he was born of a virgin. That was long before that he was Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But you want to know what Moses reasoned by faith? Moses believed that the fellowship of the sufferings of Jesus Christ is greater than the most powerful halls of Egypt. That was the greatest power on the face of the earth at that time. He esteemed that it was better to suffer and have fellowship with Jesus Christ down in those mud pits with taskmasters whipping my back than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. But the point I really want to make for you there with Moses is because it says that he esteemed the reproaches of Christ. And that was before Christ ever showed up. That was before he would. He was always the Christ, the anointed. That was before he was Jesus, born of a virgin, Jesus of Nazareth. But Jesus Christ came down there and fellowshiped with Moses in Goshen. Why? Because he learned the appropriate lessons. And he didn't learn those lessons in the presence of the Pharaoh. He learned those lessons through suffering with God's people down in Goshen. Okay? And then, Romans chapter 8 to conclude. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> Verse 18, for I reckon, I determine by an accounting T-chart that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. If we're going to be disciples of Jesus Christ here in this world, it's not going to be by the days of Solomon, of nothing but prosperity, nothing but peace, nothing but ease. We know what happened after those days. Solomon became apostate and the kingdom was rent in two. That's what happened. But there are lessons to be learned, important lessons to be learned through suffering. And you know what? When I was eight years old, I sure didn't enjoy not being able to play a video game for three days either. <laughs> but you know what? I thought about it the next time. I thought about it. And I'm hopefully learning a lesson that the next time that I'm approached with that, I choose obedience instead of disobedience. And God loves you enough to chastise you. He loves you enough to chastise you. Love is not just allowing kids to just do whatever they want to do and allow them to run around like free-range chickens. Love is setting boundaries because you know there's dangers outside of those boundaries. And when they test those boundaries, you inflict godly, loving suffering to protect them from the dangers outside of those fences, right? And if we do that as parents, boy, how much more so does Jesus Christ and God the Father do that for his children, right? Let's, to the best of our ability, receive the lessons. Receive the lessons of suffering to have greater obedience to the word of God and service to the Lord. And if we're going to be more conformed to Jesus Christ, our life 
is not always going to be characterized by comfort and ease. It's going to be characterized by humility and submission to the will of God, even in the midst of challenging circumstances, even in the midst of suffering. Mm -hmm. And I pray that we can learn obedience through the suffering that we might have come in our life according to the will of God. We thank you for listening to today's message and invite you to visit Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church for worship services every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. Macedonia is located at 11 Staten Road on Highway 15, five miles north of Ackerman, Mississippi. For further information about Macedonia Primitive Baptist Church, you may visit our website at macedonia-pbc.org.